Hello and welcome back to F1 in Review. In this episode, we're looking back at the Belgium Grand Prix that took place last weekend. And in F1 times like this, I'm reminded of the famous words of Northern Irish pop band D-Ream. Things can only get better. Let's get started. Sebastian Vettel's gone into Max Verstappen. And under braking, Leclerc has gone into the barriers at the penultimate turn. Perez ahead of Stroll, ahead of Ricardo behind. Oh, it's a tight finish. It's a photo finish. Adding another championship to his collection. It's Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. I can, al- I can already imagine exactly. all of our 20 listeners just rolling <laughs> that on the floor in laughter. You think we have 20? <laughs> Yeah, That's uh, add another zero. Am I right, friends? <laughs> High five. Oh. <laughs> another race, another one-two for Mercedes, another victory for the Silver Arrows, or more specifically, another victory for Lewis Hamilton. He's won five of the seven Grand Prix this season, while his teammate Valtteri Bottas has won just one. Tristan, shed some light on this clear inter-team disparity this season. So back in season two of F1 Review, I described Valtteri Bottas as a beige trouser driver, and by that I meant he was pretty plain, dull. A dependable Formula One driver, but dependable in the same way that a beige pair of chinos are. No one has ever been wowed by a pair of beige chinos. This comment I still stand by, but I feel now is probably a good time to reflect on what I said a bit more. Is it really his fault that he's regressed into this sturdy figure of position to excellence? I think when I first made this statement, I might have said, absolutely. He should be standing up to Mercedes, fighting Hamilton and taking victories. I want ha- Rosberg versus Hamilton 2.0. But it's not really as simple as Bottas just standing up to Mercedes. We can tell Bottas is frustrated by this weekend at Spa. During the race, Bottas was catching up to Hamilton. And we find that he adjusts the performance of his engine using a steering wheel. And then we hear this. Valtteri H, BP1, set position 4. 1 is not allowed. We have one push now. We do, but we agreed not to use it against each other. I never heard of that. Within the radio transmission, Valtteri's engineer comes onto the radio and states that the position he put his car's engine into is not allowed. Now Valtteri then replies and asks Mercedes if they have one push available. Now this push mode that he's referring to is an extra power mode on the engine. Probably increasing fuel flow to maximum, allowing the car to rev higher and gaining as much horsepower of the engine as possible. Now crucially, this would result in a more responsive car and even more speed. He would, in no doubt, catch up to Hamilton. And if the power mode is activated down the street with DRS, it actually makes the silver arrow basically unstoppable. However, as this engine mode deteriorates the engine quite quickly, they only allow themselves to use this mode once per race to ensure longevity of the power unit. Now Valtteri's race engineer comes back to him and says now he does have it, i.e. that Valtteri is in a position to use the higher power mode in theory. However, they agreed before the race not to use it against Hamilton, to which Valtteri says he didn't know anything about this. So what what can we infer? Well, we infer that what Valtteri is saying, that he was unaware that he wasn't allowed to use this extra power against Hamilton. So what does this message imply? Well, it could tell us that Mercedes race engineers and strategists of both drivers are making deals without the driver's input. And when asked about the message after the race, 
Total Wolf did say that Valtteri did know that he was supposed to save the push engine mode against someone like Verstappen, just in case he needed a defensive position. And that that was the reason behind Bottas's confusion, as it was just a miscommunication between the team and Valtteri. However, whatever the real reason behind Bottas's confusion is, I don't really care for what's going on at Mercedes right now. After the race, Hamilton commented on Sunday that the F1 leadership needed to make races more interesting. But I think maybe he should start looking at his own bosses before criticising Formula 1 as a whole. In Formula 1, teammates are only teammates to a certain extent. They are supposed to be fighting one another, and it is in the spirit of Formula 1 to allow drivers within teams to battle each other for the final victory. Formula 1 history is full of this, for example Ayrton Senna versus Alain Prost at McLaren. However, it seems like Mercedes has been scarred by the 2016 Hamilton versus Rosberg rivalry, which ended up with Rosberg taking the world championship, however the two drivers testing each other by the end of it. But for a racing fan like myself, it's these great rivalries that make a season incredible, and given that Mercedes is the total dominant team this year, we're only really going to get a championship battle between the two Mercedes drivers themselves. But that's not going to happen. Unfortunately, Mercedes has decided that Hamilton and Bottas will not battle each other. It's gloves firmly on situation, in which whoever is in the lead, probably Hamilton, will stay there without fear of his teammate. Bottas has been confirmed for the 2021 season already, and to be honest, I wasn't expecting anything else. I just hope for the sake of the sport, Mercedes allows its drivers to be competitors as well as teammates. But what do you think? Is it right for Mercedes to have a clear number one, number two driver? Or will it end with a hollow victory for the Silver Arrows and the sport just becoming dull at the front with great rivalries appearing within the mid-pack? I absolutely agree that by having this sort of first driver, second driver tier, this makes Formula 1 in its current state unbearably dull for many people, including myself, who've been watching since 2008. And if it's making me feel bored by the sports and making me feel apprehensive to continue watching part with a race I know has already been concluded about 20 laps in, then what does this do to the average casual Formula One watcher or dare I say human being that wants to go and watch sports? It says to them, don't tune into Formula One if you want to watch motorsport racing or car racing, go and watch something else because this isn't a race, this is merely a procession. And you're absolutely right, if Hamilton is going to criticise the Formula One body as a whole, the entire entity for the boring racing, it's quite ironic because it's coming exactly from that Mercedes team. That being said, I understand why Mercedes are doing this. Lest we forget the toxic relationship between Rosberg and Hamilton, not only between the two drivers, but I think also by the individual garages of each driver. It was a real sort of civil war going on between the Silver Arrows, uh, internally and I think the only reason this wasn't exacerbated it didn't really all end in tears was because Rosberg firstly quit after he won and secondly because shock horror Ferrari and Red Bull were unable to keep up with this team that being said regardless of the fact that we're currently in a state where Hamilton is prioritized undisputably over Bottas and the fact that Bottas is constrained I am of the opinion that Bottas, if he were level with Hamilton, i.e. unconstrained, given exactly the same treatment and equal treatment of that, that he wouldn't beat Hamilton on his day. Why is this? First, it's because Hamilton is undisputably 
one of the best drivers, if not the best driver of all time in Formula 1. He's showing this now, as we saw in the Saturday qualifying for Belgium. Half a second over his own teammates is just insanity. It just shows how good the man is. And secondly, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I don't think Valtteri Bottas could beat Hamilton in an equal car. I don't think Valtteri Bottas will be a world champion. And the way you get more competitive racing in an era which is completely dominated by Mercedes is you get a young driver in, like what happened with Ferrari, you get a Charles Leclerc figure into that team who goes, actually, you know what, I'm not going to be a good little boy and take orders. I'm going to fight back and I'm going to go and prove to everybody I deserve to be in this team because of my quality and I'm not going to be sitting behind Hamilton just keeping him safe and making sure the one-two is secured. For me, that person who does that perfectly is either Esteban Ocon or George Russell. If you put one of those two into that second seat, I think you get, I don't want to say a renewed Formula 1 where it's exactly how it used to be in the, in the fact that Mercedes are now battling each other, but it would definitely make it more interesting because yes, Bottas is disgruntled, he's unhappy, but he doesn't do anything with that. He just goes, no, well, that's a shame, basically, and then just carries on. He needs to bite back, be it verbally or otherwise. Uh, I don't think he's capable of doing that. I don't think he's capable of winning a championship at that. So in my opinion, he needs to be replaced. The real shame, I think, he's been given a new contract for the entertainment of the sport because he sucks a lot of the entertainment out of it at the moment. I would say that for the if you're talking about the good of Formula One, then having a number one and a number two driver in one team, in the team that's so dominant, is not a good thing. I can see why Mercedes go with the driver strategy, the driver lineup that they do. Tom mentioned about how um, the stress and the the sort of the wrangle that they had with Hamilton and Rosberg, two high class drivers being up against each other. And basically, if you think of the situation those two had, they went from being best mates to basically hating each other in the space of three years as teammates. And it's clear there is more harmony with Bottas in the team than there was uh, when there was Rosberg in the team. But it's a similar situation to Ferrari in the early 2000s. You had one driver, um, Michael Schumacher, at the absolute top of his game, read that as Lewis Hamilton, right now in 2020 and you did teammate in Rubens Barrichello in the Ferrari days and now Valtteri Bottas for Mercedes who was decent enough picked up a few Grand Prix wins a few a lot of podiums was reliable but was too nice and not really sort of that top top level to challenge the number one driver so I can see why Mercedes have brought in Bottas they've clearly seen the model that Ferrari took in those early 2000s and have seen it's a championship winning model in terms of um, as long as they produce the car to take them to that level. But if you're talking about the good of Formula One, I'd say that somehow they have to find a way to replace to replace Bottas, but it's harsh, it's, it would be harsh to... I feel like it would be too sort of scripted if you took a driver out just because they were impacting the show. I mean, I think naturally events will take their course eventually and either Hamilton or Retire or George Russell or Esteban Ocon will prove that they're good enough to step up to that Mercedes seat and you might have a bit more competition and eventually once the rule changes come in we will see hopefully I don't know Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull all competing for race wins maybe even the upshot like a McLaren or a Renault or an Aston Martin topping the grid possibly um, but it's a difficult one because obviously it would be incredibly harsh to say to Bottas oh you shouldn't be driving because you know you make the sport too boring at the front 
personally i don't have a problem with teams having a, a first driver and a second driver i think in a lot of times it can actually be useful you, especially when we've seen in the past two very similar very fiery drivers not not having a first and a second driver then coming together clashing having incidents we've seen it in the past we saw a little bit last year with seb and charles in the ferraris you know they had those clashes and those incidents that really ruined the spirit of the team so i completely understand mercedes mercedes having that one two having a first driver However, I'd love to see a second driver just pushing a little bit more, just taking those chances. There was the opportunity on the first corner that Valtteri really didn't take. He left off far too soon and Verstappen almost even got past him. He was lucky that Hamilton was able to create a slipstream for him that kept him ahead. But Valtteri isn't, just isn't seeing what he isn't. He's in one of the best cars, but he's not bringing out performances that make us exciting. The front of the field isn't as exciting as the middle of the field. And that just shouldn't be the case right now. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few years about the drivers, but I agree that at the moment Valtteri just isn't isn't performing as what we would want a Mercedes driver to be performing at. And I think, as you said, George Russell coming in would be, really be a big change for the team. Coolio, Coolio. All right, all good to go. Yeah, I like the song. Is is Tom's version of a hacker? <laughs> Okay, right. <laughs> I should not say this. No, because we are laughing. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. This is really serious stuff. Daniel Ricciardo qualified fourth in the Belgian Grand Prix last weekend and finished in exactly the same position. Liv, how did Ricciardo and Renault once again get it so right this weekend compared to their other midfield competitors? Thank you, Tom. Yeah, as you said, qualified in fourth, finished the race in fourth. That was his second top four finish in just four races. And of course, a very, very key point, he got the fastest lap as well at Spa. So he started, as he mentioned, in fourth beside his old teammate, Verstappen. Absolutely love seeing those two together. And he even actually snuck briefly into third on that opening lap just past Verstappen. It was so exciting. It was so good to see him right up at the front there. Um, during the race, he slipped back a little bit, uh, in particular after the safety car that was called, caused by Giovinazzi. And also a quick shout out to the halo on George Russell's car that kept him safe from that flying tyre. Um, anyway, with Ricardo, despite losing some time um, with that incident, he pressed forward uh, in the final few laps and he was actually able to finish just three seconds behind Max Verstappen. Bear in mind, Max was in the Red Bull and, and Ricardo is just in his Renault. So, you know, you're really seeing a bit of a turn of pace for the Renault at the moment. Um, during this time, when he managed to catch up, uh, he also snatched fastest lap, as I mentioned. That was a 147.483, which was it's, it was quick for that track. Um, this was Renault's first fastest lap since 2010. I, think, I believe it was Robert Kubica who did that. So a huge, uh, you know, a huge achievement in, for the first time in 10 years. Um, with Ocon finishing behind him in fifth, Renault left Spa with 23 points, which is their biggest single race score since returning full-time to the sport in 2016. Big, big weekend for them. Um, following his strong performance over the last few weekends, Ricardo now sits in eighth in the driver standings. I believe when we spoke about the Renault boys a few weeks ago, they were in 10th and 11th, so a bit of improvement there. So... We all know Daniel's a superb driver, and I feel like this weekend we really got to see that. Um, and it got me thinking more, to be honest, about what could have been if he'd stayed at Red Bull. 
I think I would honestly have loved to see him stay there. I think him and Max together, partly just as a partnership and as a friendship, is brilliant. But also seeing Daniel Ricciardo in a competitive car would just be so amazing. And I wish that he stayed there. However, obviously we understand that he may have been unhappy. We all thought, um, you know, and every, I mean, everyone thought he thought it too, that when he first moved to Renault, it looked a little bit like it might have been a poor choice. Um, and back in uh, 2019, that season did not start well at all. And, you know, it was pretty average overall. However, this season, over the past uh, few races, obviously we spoke about this a few weeks ago, about how Renault were having a turn of pace. And here we are, a few weeks later, discussing their fourth and fifth fin- finish at Spa. Um ahead of obviously the Ferraris and although if you told us this last year we might have been surprised and of course and also one of the Red Bulls so they're up there with the top cars um this turn of paces yeah has proved really exciting for Renault and this weekend as we head to Monza um this was the uh sorry this weekend we head to Monza where last year Renault scored their highest points of the entire season they scored 23 22 points there last season um, so it's very promising, especially off the back of this um, this weekend we just witnessed. It's interesting that Renault outperformed the two McLaren cars. McLaren are still ahead of uh, Renault in the Constructors' Championship and you know, by quite a few places. However, looking closely into it, there's not many points in it at all. I believe, I think McLaren on something like 68 and um, Renault were on 59. So they're they are actually very close and a couple of good results could completely swing that with racing point obviously we had we saw some great pace at the beginning of the season things have dropped off a little bit now um but you know you've got Perez and Stroll who are proving to be very very strong drivers so the midfield is really taking an interesting turn from what we thought would be in my opinion at the beginning of the season and we saw the speed we thought it would be racing point and then we thought it would be McLaren and then we thought it'd be Renault I feel like we could still see a, a, a big change and um, it's going to be exciting to see what happens at Monza on a track that we know Renault can, can do well at. Obviously, I mentioned Renault outperformed uh, the two McLaren cars. Sainz didn't even get to start. Obviously, that's not his fault, um, but it was an issue with the car with, at the end of the day and um, it meant, you know, that, that Renault did did do far better and that got me thinking you know is Danny made the right choice is it you know could this be the wrong decision moving to McLaren next year probably not but it's an interesting thought to have following this weekend um and just finally my dad and I were speaking earlier about Daniel's various moves career moves between teams and my dad felt that this move to McLaren will make or break Daniel Ricciardo's career he's been he did brilliantly at Red Bull and he had a, a difficult, weird move to Renault. Hasn't been brilliant. Move to McLaren could be exciting, could be good. But will he ever see a return to the levels of success that he achieved at Red Bull as much as I want it? I don't think so. So this move to McLaren is going to be big. Is it going to be better than Renault? And of course, will it ever make up to what it was at Red Bull? So that's sort of what I'm thinking about Ricardo at the moment. And I've got a couple of questions for you guys. Um, can we expect some a high points finish for Ricardo in Monza this weekend? Maybe a podium, or is that is that completely silly? And my second question is: What do you think about Ricardo's future career? Was McLaren the right decision? Was Renault the right decision? But obviously, that's a whole new topic. So, really, that's looking forward. What can we see from Ricardo over the next few years? So, in terms of what we can expect this weekend, I'd say based on the performance at Spa, Renault have got to be contenders for a podium again. Thinking of the fact that Ricardo and Ocon, to be honest, both Esteban Ocon as well has to be mentioned, showed a very good performance. They were contenders for 
um, for the top three in qualifying. Ahead of Ricardo, for example, is ahead of Verstappen and Albon after the first runs in Q3. So I see no reason why this weekend a track with very similar characteristics, um, with of course the long straights that Monza is famous for, being the, uh, his nickname being the Temple of Speed. Um, I see no reason why we would not see a repeat performance from Renault, to be honest. Um, and you'd have to say with sort of maybe maybe sort of with the track being a little less in terms of its corners being a little less uh, high speed in nature with all the chicanes you have there. Um, you'd say maybe that would benefit Red Bull um, a bit more. But then think of the performance that Renault, like Liv said, that Renault showed last year at Monza with fourth and fifth for Ricardo and Hulkenberg. Um, I think ahead of both Red Bulls in the end. So I see no reason why uh, this weekend, and possibly also if we look a bit further ahead, at the uh, Tuscan Grand Prix at the Mugello circuit, um, which is another very high-speed circuit with lots of flat-out corners, I see no reason why the next couple of races not be beneficial for Renault and Daniel Ricciardo. One, one worrying thing about the Renault situation is when asked why they're now faster, they said they don't really know, which is a little bit worrying for a team that's supposed to be in Formula 1, given that they have so much data there, and these cars are effectively upside-down aeroplanes. So, um, I don't know what they've done, but they've done something good. And Daniel Ricciardo, partly to blame for the extra speed, he's clearly knew the track at, at Spa, and going into Monza, he said he was very optimistic. They're going to be super-duper low downforce for Monza, given that it's the fastest... Well, I was going to say fastest track of the, the year, but thanks to the Bahrain Outer Circuit, which I believe, Angus, you predicted in the last podcast episode, um, it's now not going to be, but uh, Monza is, is incredibly fast, and whatever happens with very few corners, um, and some corners taken up basically full throttle. So, yeah, I, I think Renault might well do really, really well on, um, in the... In, in the upcoming Italian Grand Prix, it'd be funny um, seeing like a reversal situation with Ferrari not doing so well in Monza and, and Renault doing relatively uh, well. And um, a little bit more encouragement, I think, for Ricardo to just get onto that podium is his bet with the team principal for Renault, Cyril. Because they've said that if he gets a podium, then the Cyril will get a tattoo of Ricardo's choice, I believe, which uh, I think would be brilliant. So, yeah, it'd be nice to see Renault on the podium because the great Renault of past with Alonso in it is has faded away. And it'd just be nice to see more teams on the podium and not just, as we're sort of seeing at the moment, Mercedes, Mercedes, and then probably Verstappen in the Red Bull in third. So... I think Ricardo will do well in the future. And to be honest, I think uh, McLaren is getting Mercedes engines next year, and I think that will improve them further, just because we saw the, the issues with the McLaren engine. So I think once McLaren's ironed out some of those reliability issues with the power unit, then it can only be good for that. So I think Ricardo's made the right choice to go to McLaren when they're picking up better engines. So I think he's made a better choice than, for example, Carlos Sainz, who's heading to uh, Ferrari next year. Well, the real question for Daniel Ricciardo is what does the future hold for him? He's 31 years old. We know he's going to McLaren, as we say, which is undoubtedly a very good move. McLaren have been consistently at the top of this midfield battle, as shown by the fact they're currently third in the constructors with a cool 68 points. Bear in mind that's only two away or above from racing points. But let's remember, Daniel Ricciardo left Red Bull to go to Renault because he wanted A, something new, and B, he wanted to ultimately become a world champion. 
Now, do I believe that Daniel Ricciardo will fulfil that objective of his and that ambition at McLaren? Well, looking towards 2020, the immediate answer would be no, because of the clear uh, dominance and success and superiority of that Mercedes car and that Mercedes team. Above that, you've got Red Bull, a team he ironically left, which are going to be no doubt above McLaren uh, in the 2021 season and beyond, in my opinion, because they've got such a, a better team and, dare I say, a lot of more money behind them. And then, of course, Ferrari will return, not next season, because we know the same car of this season will be in 2021. But once they have the chance to redesign their car in 2022, there is no doubt they will re they will return with a full uh, fire and fury of the prancing horses. So that makes me think you've got three teams, I think, who are going to be above that McLaren car. Well, that leaves me thinking, where does Daniel Ricciardo fit into this? Where does he end up? Probably around the midfield mark, probably around the sort of sixth, seventh and eighth that he's been around at the moment. Maybe a bit high here and there, but consistently he'll be in that midfield battle. And unless there's a serious improvement from these aforementioned Mercedes engines that McLaren will be getting, it's really unclear to me and I don't think that Daniel Ricciardo will be fulfilling that objective of being a world champion ever. I think he had the best chance of becoming a world champion at Red Bull. Things obviously didn't work out there. Things behind the scene weren't awesome and rosy and the fact that he left when the car was very strong where he got a third place in the drivers championship I believe in 2017. So he's almost thrown away the best opportunity he could ever have to become a world champion. And I just I just don't see, when you look at his age, in conjunction with the car he's going to and the competition around him in the future, that he's ever going to fulfil that objective, which is quite a sad one because in many regards he had almost all the tools at his disposal to become a world champion. But in my opinion, I think he's kind of thrown it away. Tom, you say he's you know thrown away all these chances, but... Ricardo has moved from Red Bull to Renault, Renault to next McLaren. And from McLaren, you have a clear upgrade path to Mercedes. Now, we know that Bottas is the 2021 elected driver. But after that, it's a little bit unknown. And we have these drivers waiting in the wings, such as George Russell. But Mercedes is going to have to replace two drivers at some point. So... If I was Toto Wolf, I'd be thinking, well, maybe we save Russell to replace Hamilton because Hamilton's getting on a bit now. And we have another driver who's a little bit lost in Ricardo, who we know is, is incredibly talented. So maybe we could have a Mercedes driver in Ricardo, moving from McLaren, who will have the Mercedes engines, up to the, the main Mercedes team. Do you not think that would happen? I think that's quite a idealistic and perhaps romantic solution. I think it'd be a fool for me to go and say that I don't think that will happen whatsoever and that there's sort of zero probability of this. But Ricardo going to Mercedes is on the provision that McLaren and Mercedes still retain their close relationship. It wasn't too long ago that, of course, Red Bull and Renault were working together and now they're sort of poles apart and sworn enemies in the trenches, so to speak. So it's dependent on that. And secondly... I can't see that happening insofar that they've got Russell, yes, but they've also got a proven, dare I say, or increasingly proven driver in Esteban Ocon also driving for Renault, who is part of the Mercedes Academy and is performing very well on the two occasions he's been in the seat. So that immediately makes me think that surely he 
instead of Russell, is first in line to succeed Hamilton or Bottas. Who's to say as well, when Hamilton leaves, that Bottas doesn't stay to continue that sort of uh, stopper gap position and to continue to be, have a sort of element of stability in that team. That means there's perhaps one seat, maybe two, but one, let's say. And I think that seat, first of all, goes to Ocon if he continues how he's currently been doing. And secondly, another one goes to Russell because these are young drivers. They've stuck with them in the Mercedes Academy. They're performing well. So for me, those two drivers go ahead of Ricardo to start with. But yeah, I wouldn't rule it out, no. All right, time for a bit of... Antonio Giovinazzi magic. Uh, yeah. Said nobody ever. <laughs> Not even Alfa Romeo saying that, let's be real. Oh. Um, right, here we go for a big old monologue. On lap 10 of the Belgium Grand Prix, Antonio Giovinazzi lost control of his Alfa Romeo at the exit of the famed chicane, bounced back onto the track and triggered a safety car after one of his stray front tyres hit George Russell's Williams and caused both drivers to crash out of the race. While there is no doubt this incident was purely accidental, with the Italian later admitting he got on the power too early from the exit, this is a simple and unforced error which has rightly or wrongly got me thinking. Is the 26-year-old Italian driver the best Alfa Romeo can do? Does he deserve to be racing for them and test driving for Scuderia Ferrari next year? Well, if we're solely looking at the drivers' championship so far this season, the answer could perhaps be yes. Giovinazzi is currently 16th after 21 drivers after obtaining two points. This being two points and two places above his 40-year-old teammate and ex-Ferrari driver, Kimi Raikkonen. However, a closer inspection of the 26-year-old's record over the last seven races of this season shows that the Italian is hardly flying high or exceeding any expectations whatsoever. After all, all of Giovinazzi's points this season have come from one race, the Austrian season opener where he finished 9th and only 13 cars actually completed the race. Moreover, while competitive data between the second practice of the 2019 and 2020 Belgium Grand Prix demonstrate that the Alfa Romeo car is 0.874 seconds quicker than last year, the Italian was only able to qualify in 18th place for this Belgium Grand Prix, this being three places down on last year. This 2020 qualification was also two places behind his teammates and one behind Romain Grosjean who is driving a Haas car only 0.286 seconds quicker than its 2019 predecessor. Nevertheless, the 26-year-old can take refuge in the fact that he has outperformed his 40-year-old teammate in four out of seven qualifying sessions this season and continues to have a strong relationship with Ferrari that has been in, that has been in existence since 2017. These three years with Ferrari have seen him complete extensive simulator work for the Italian Giants and become one of the two test drivers for the team last year. This connection was also key to Giovinazzi securing one of Alfa Romeo's seats for 2019. While he was nevertheless able to secure 14 points and a best finish of 5th place during his debut season, it currently is looking like he's unable to replicate the success in his second one. In addition to this, the team principal of Ferrari, Mattia Bonotto, stated that regardless of his Ferrari connections at the moment, the 26-year-old was never in contention to replace Vettel for the 2021 season due to his lack of Formula 1 experience. So what do you think? 
Should either of these Ferrari-based teams stick with the Italian, or should he make way for one of the five F2 drivers who are part of the Ferrari Driver Academy, such as the 20-year-old Russian Robert Schwarzman, who is currently leading the 2020 championship with 132 points, or perhaps, instead, the 21-year-old Brit Callum Allot, who is currently second in this championship and a mere 10 points behind his fellow academy driver. Absolutely, Tom. I personally don't see Giovinazzi staying, or I don't personally believe he should. The reason being is I describe him as one of those people who I know he's there, but I don't really register him. Like the only reason I knew something that he was like about there at Spa was because of his accident. And I know that sounds really harsh, but there's nothing about Giovinazzi that's made me stand up and think and look and hang on a second. He's always just been sort of there. And I feel like 26, yeah, obviously we're going on about, we go on about age and obviously there's people like Lewis who is far older than him and doing absolutely brilliantly. But get someone younger in. Like I know I always say this, but I think that for this we can agree that I mean, we might not agree. We'll find out. But with Ferrari, especially in this weird moment that they're in, and they've obviously got a really young first team coming up next year with with um, Leclerc and um, Signs together. Keep it up. You know, that's what the academy is for. And as I said, they have some great, great drivers. For me, out of the ones you mentioned, it's got to be Robert Schwartzman. Um, there's quite a lot of talk about it being Mick Schumacher. And obviously that would be absolutely brilliant Ferrari. And I know that's what they want. However... Mick's not quite there, um, in my opinion, and from what I've seen. So absolutely, Robert deserves it. Callum continues to perform really well. They're, they're the two strongest contenders for me. I have a feeling they may inch towards Mick because of his father's history at the team. Um, but yeah, in my opinion, Robert Schwartzman and I don't think Giovinazzi should get a seat, in my opinion. He doesn't wow me. Even people who are performing worse than him, like we've seen a few poor performances from George, unfortunately, but we see something exciting in him and we're, we're, we're excited and we're buzzing about his future. I'm personally not buzzing about Giovinazzi's future. I like reading about the past of, of Giovinazzi, especially on the official Formula One site, because the last good thing that they put on their website about Giovinazzi is that he came runner-up to Pierre Gasly in the GP2 season back in 2016, which I think tells you all you need to know about this driver. And I completely agree with with Liv that he is a nothing driver. He has a fun name, and it's a little bit irresistible, a Italian driver being an Alfa Romeo, and that's, I suppose, nice, um, homegrown and all that. But he's just not very good. He, he, that's it. There's no more to be said on him. He is what I would call a pay-to-driver, where you have lots of good sponsorship and money behind you. Another example of that would be uh, Latifi in Williams. And I think promoting a, him uh, to Formula 1 was a mistake. I think he was it was too early. I don't think he was proven. Um, he wasn't proven enough yet. And that's clearly the case because someone like Pierre Gassi is doing very well now and Alex Albon's doing well but compared to the, compare that to Giovinazzi it's not not really the case and actually again Liv I'm going to agree with you with the the young um with the other drivers that are coming into Formula One I think especially with Schumacher the problem with Mick Schumacher is a 
a, a name does not make a good driver. A good driver makes their name. And I feel like people are looking at Verstappen and saying, well, Jos Verstappen was good and now Max Verstappen is good. Therefore, Michael Schumacher was good and Mick Schumacher is now going to be good. It's a bit confusing. Could have been a bit more ambitious with the name choice in going from Michael down to Mick. <sighs> it's like we're going back to the NASA Massa thing that we had, um, uh, well, half a decade now ago. Um, but I think, I think, I think, Liv, you're right. Absolutely bang on. They're going to pick... My, um, they're going to pick Mick Schumacher just because of his dad, and then everyone's going to be bitterly disappointed when he's not as good as the racing legend himself. And I'm not going to lie, Mick Schumacher's got some gigantic boots to fill, and I would not want to be in his position. Got to be honest, I think Joe Vinazzi shouldn't be in Formula One. I don't think he's very good. Um, it's a good point, I think, that Liv makes that the only time you ever notice him is when he's. Well, crashing, um, and this weekend was one of those examples. He you never really seemed to sort of see him do any like spectacular performances. I remember an, ex- an example of last year at Spa when he came, or was in ninth or eighth place in the final lap, and then the TV cameras hadn't been on him all race, and then he crashed, and that was the only reason we knew that he was uh, he was around during the race. Um, yeah, he never really. I feel like for him to be cementing his place in Formula One more. He should be doing more than sort of just outpacing. Admittedly, it's a world champion in Kimi Raikkonen, but a 40-year-old world champion, so to be 41-year-old, I feel like he should, Giovinazzi should be doing a lot more than that. And I feel like Alfa Romeo need to take they need to take a risk on a young driver. Um, and I think Robert Schwartzman could be the, could be the perfect one, the perfect uh, drivers to take that risk on. If you look back to if you think back Alfa Romeo in a couple of, a couple of years ago. They could took a chance at the end of 20, 2017, decided to sign for 2018 a young Monegasque driver called Charles Leclerc, who had a lot of potential and had just won the Formula 2 championship in his debut season. A few years later, that Charles Leclerc absolutely aced his first season in Formula 1 with Alfa Romeo, um, helped them in the Constructors' Championship that year, and now is a Ferrari race winner. I think they've got to take the same risk with Schwartzman because Schwartzman is could be on course to accomplish what only Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg, Nico Hülkenberg, Charles Leclerc and George Russell have done. And that is win GP2 or Formula 2 in their debut season. So it's some, something that's very difficult to achieve. And it's got to be said that if Robert Schwartzman could do that, then I think he should be a shoe-in for that seat at Alfa Romeo. He's beating many drivers below him in the driver's standings in Formula 2 who are in their second season with that year of experience under their belt. So to be able to beat all of them, having never raced a Formula 2 car before a few months ago, I think he should he should definitely race Giovinazzi. Um, that would immediately, in my mind, um, show more potential than Giovinazzi um, could possibly ever have. So I think that unless Giovinazzi ups his performance soon enough, then his time in Formula 1 could be coming to a swift end because Schwartzman is breathing down his neck. On the 31st of August 2019, the young French F2 driver Antoine Hubert sadly passed away after an accident during the Belgian Grand Prix feature race. Angus, tell us more about this young starlight taken away from us all too soon. Yes, thank you, Tom. Um, so yesterday, the 31st of August, was the one-year anniversary since Antoine Hubert's life was tragically lost during, as you said, the F2 feature race at Spa this time last year. And there were a lot of tributes over the weekend of the race this year, and rightly so, because it had been 12 months since uh, his passing. And it was a passing that deeply affected the motor racing and Formula 1 community. 
It was the first death of a driver at the racetrack on an F1 weekend since the 1994 San Marino Grand Prix when Ayrton Senna and Ronan Ratzenberger had passed away on consecutive days. And it was the first time a driver had died from their injuries as a result of a crash on an F1 weekend since Jules Bianchi at the 2014 Japanese Grand Prix. Its impact on the motor racing and Formula 1 communities was large. A lot of the drivers who, of course, had to do the Belgian Grand Prix, the Formula 1 race, the day after on the same track. Um, a lot of them were heavily impacted by what happened. There's a video on YouTube of Lewis Hamilton being interviewed after qualifying for the Formula 1 race, and there's a TV screen of the Formula 2 race by his side, and you see his reaction as he sees Antoine Hubert's accident unfold, and he's visibly shocked and has to walk away from the interview. Um, due to sort of the impact it's had had on him. Quite a few of the drivers as well had raced against Uber in karting and junior formulae. Pierre Gasly, who has come out this last weekend, has said that he struggled to accept Antoine Uber's death, those two being practically best mates, having been in the same karting academy, grown up together, both being from France, of course, and Charles Leclerc as well, monogas driver for Ferrari dedicating his win at last year's Belgian Grand Prix to uh, Hubert. Uh, Charles Leclerc being another one who sort of part of that generation of French-speaking drivers, which includes Gasly, Leclerc, Esteban Ocon, who've all raced against, uh, who all raced against Antoine Hubert in the lower formula as they were growing up. A lot of people, when interviewed about Antoine Hubert, comment on his incredible character. They often say what a special human being he was with the dual combination of in being an incredibly kind person, but also showing phenomenal determination and tenacity on track. Now, I'd say that for someone like myself, who never met uh, the man, it's impossible to comment on these personal characteristics. But what is unquestionable is the racing talent that he possessed. If you look at his record before he, um, before he sadly passed away, 11 wins out of 21 in the 2013 French Formula 4 Championship, he made six appearances as a guest driver in the 2015 Formula Renault 2.0 Alps season. So he wasn't even a full-time driver in that series. Yet in those six races, he got four wins and four pole positions. Championship victory in GP3 in 2018, following, followed by an inevitable promotion to Formula 2. Before his death, he was eighth in the Formula 2 standings, which may not seem that spectacular on first impression. But when you consider he was competing with Guan Yu Zhou for the sort of the highest placed rookie, and also the fact that he was the only rookie in that season to who won a race, and those two wins, two of the biggest of all for him, Monaco, one of the hardest tracks, beating uh, Louis Delatraz home by just 0.059 seconds, holding off an, uh, some incredible attacks in the last few laps, showing great determination and courage to pull through and win that race. And the second race he won that year, perhaps personally for him, the biggest of all, at Paul Ricard, his home race, taking home that prize that every driver wants, winning in front of their home fans. And even despite being a Formula 2 driver and the support being sort of, and with him being maybe less well-known than Formula 1 drivers, the images of the, the tricolore, the French flags fluttering in the wind as the people in the crowd celebrated was quite an image. And looking back after his passing, it's an even more incredible image. He was a very talented racing driver who had major potential to reach Formula 1. You've got to imagine that after his debut season in Formula 2, other victories would have been on the cards, maybe a top five finish in the championship, and that he would have for sure been a contender for this year's Formula 2 championship and would possibly have been in line for an inevitable graduation to Formula 1, adding to the burgeoning French contingent that is currently in the top level of uh, motorsport.
any racing driver's death is an incredible tragedy because it represents the possibility of years left in motor racing where the, where the potential is unfulfilled as it's cruelly snatched away from them in an instant of a crash on track and Antoine Hubert's uh, life being cut short at the age of just 22 was an immeasurable loss to motorsport. At the same time, I guess we can take some solace from knowing that in the racing career he did have, he always enjoyed it. It seems he always did it with a smile on his face. And that is the impression that it's got from anyone you speak to. Everyone in interviews is very glowing and, and praising of his characteristics, but also his, his talent and his work rate. There's a video on the driver's parade before the Spa F2 race being interviewed. And he says how he was enjoying being at Spa with the fans, the French fans, the French flags in the crowd and the track itself just seeming to be enjoying life, just enjoying the fact that he's racing, doing his passion as his profession. Um, and that is perhaps what we, we have to take one year on from that, is that despite the tragic shortening of his life, in one way it is maybe some consolation that he passed away doing what he loved, um, in a profession where his talent and passion always showed through. And it must it's safe to say, I reckon, that had he continued, he would have reached Formula One. The potential was for sure there, and it would have been many more years of that talent and passion continuing to show through. And I'm sure that whenever motor racing is taking place, Antoine Hubert will always be in our thoughts and prayers. I agree, Angus. Antoine's impact on so many of the drivers was hugely significant. On Pierre in particular, who you discussed, who lived and trained with Hubert for so many years. And as you mentioned, Leclerc and Ocon too. He'd been teammates with George Russell and Alex Albon in the past as well. So a big number of those Formula One drivers we saw on the grid had been influenced and had experienced good times with Antoine. It really was difficult to witness the pain throughout the entire industry and his untimely death proved a reminder to all of us of the danger of the sport. Antoine really was the epitome of a good guy. It is astounding how many people's lives he touched. And it really was emotional reading all the driver's tributes. I think we can agree that all of our thoughts continue to go out to Antoine's family and friends. I think what shocked me about the Spa accident and what happened to Antoine Hubert is in Formula One, we often rest on our laurels a bit that the technological advances are so good that it will protect the driver from everything. And in Formula Two, we think the same thing and in Formula Three as well. And we see these massive impacts all the time in, in the racing and we see drivers get out. For example, Spa um, last weekend, another big accident with between Giovinazzi and George Rosso, who said earlier. And when you see someone so young die, it really brings you back to earth that what, what we talk about on this show and what we watch is in fact just 20 drivers going around a track at ridiculous speeds. We must remember that these are all people with families, girlfriends and mothers. And the thing that shocked me actually the most when we saw the accident was just looking at Antoine's mother and the realisation that everything that she had encouraged him to do had resulted in this tragic accident and so I think we all need to remember that as much as we joke about how we want drivers to fight each other 
how we want these massive internal battles. Drama can go often horribly wrong, as it did last year with Antoine Hubert. And on that very humbling note, there ends another episode of F1 in Review. We've talked about a vast array of topics. As always, today, we started with Mercedes, the civil war that never has been this season between Hamilton and Bottas, a clear prioritisation of the six-time world champion over his teammates. And at the moment, there seems to be no repercussions of these actions. Secondly, we've spoken about Daniel Ricciardo, his impressive fourth-place finish. He was able to retain his position after qualifying there in the Belgian Grand Prix. Maybe we discussed a few episodes ago that Renault are on an upwards trajectory. Maybe Daniel Ricciardo is fulfilling that prophecy and expectation he, I, and many people have on him and the team. Thirdly, we spoke about Antonio Giovinazzi, the 26-year-old Italian driver, is still with Alfa Romeo, but for how much longer? He is currently 16th in the Drivers' Championship, only with two points. Two points he secured in one race, this being the season opener. Many, like us, are saying perhaps it's about time this driver made way for many of the other Ferrari Academy drivers, be that in the testing of the new Ferrari car or for the Alfa Romeo seat for the 2021 season. And finally, just now, we've ended on the humbling notes of Antoine Hubert, remembering the young French F2 driver who sadly passed away on the 31st of August 2019 after a feature race of the Belgium Grand Prix last year. Our thoughts are, of course, with his family and those who knew him well in this dark and difficult time. And we pray, as we've just said, that we never have to go through this sort of turmoil as a Formula One community anytime soon. But on that very humbling note, and on this very mixed F1 in Review episode, we've spoken about the highs, we've also spoken about the lows. We will see you next time as we review the Monza Grand Prix, which happens next weekend. Fingers crossed that indeed things can get better. We'll see you next episode. Thank you very much for listening. Did you see what the Italian um, press said about Ferrari? They said that they should um, they should get a locked door entry, i.e. that they should just not be allowed to race. <laughs> or even better, they should, Ferrari should just go and send out like a public statement saying, Monza's not <laughs> happening, there's no need to watch it, you know. It's been cancelled. <laughs>